Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nicholas Investment Insights. This week our attention jumps to the unravelling situation in the US of A. Renowned for global leadership, they have once again jumped to the top of a less than ideal leaderboard as the highest case count and mortality due to the coronavirus, with plenty of daylight between first and second country. As the world watches in trepidation at the internal turmoil surrounding the obvious mismanagement of the virus by the Trump administration and with an election looming, the US-China trade war has now suddenly come back into the limelight. Here to pull apart today's theme, Trump reignites trade war to deflect US COVID woes. I'm joined by our chief strategist, David Llewellyn-Smith. G'day, David. G'day, Tim. Also on the line, we have, of course, our head of investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. Fantastic. And just a quick reminder that before we get started, to subscribe on YouTube and click the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch, and follow us on your preferred podcast platform. And for those listening in live today, head on over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinar and leave any questions in the chat box below the video to have them answered along the way. So with no further ado, we'll jump into the agenda for today. So we're going to be looking at the rhetorical virus war that's underway. We're going to be looking at the US election, running through the world of demand deficit, looking at whether or asking the question as to whether this is a Great Depression rerun. And then, of course, summing it all up through market implications and how we use these themes to invest every day here at Nucleus Wealth and the MB Fund. So with no further ado, let's get started. Uh, and David, I'll hand over to you for uh, our first slide, rhetorical virus war underway. Thanks, Tim. Uh, so, yeah, well, I mean, we've seen uh, the US and China trading blows now for a couple of months over the virus, um, mostly rhetorical so far. Uh, it probably began when uh, China's wolf warrior diplomatic corps, uh, maybe a month or so ago, perhaps six weeks, uh, started putting around the rumour that uh, uh, the US was actually responsible for the virus and uh, uh, in particular a Marine who had uh, visited Wuhan had somehow um, seeded the virus in China, uh, and that led, you know, quickly into a mushrooming uh, back and forth with, you know, uh, Trump describing it as the China virus, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and then that has now exploded into just a daily tit for tat uh, of escalating rhetoric. And I just wanted to give you a quote from last night for, you know, how extreme it's become in the US. You know, Donald Trump's last night said, we went through the worst attack we've ever had on our country. This is really the worst attack we've ever had. This is worse than Pearl Harbor. This is worse than the World Trade Center. There's never been an attack like this, and it should be, should never have happened. It could have been stopped at the source. It could have been stopped in China. Uh, so, I mean, obviously there are historical resonances there, there that are very extreme. Uh, you know, we take these things with a bit of a grain of salt with the extravagant rhetoric of Donald. Nonetheless, uh, you know, he he is tapping into and inflaming uh, a mood, an, a very angry mood uh, in the US. And, and uh, at a certain, a certain extent, you have to sort of, you know, as much as you can, uh, you sort of say, oh, well, it's just Donald being Donald. But, you know, in the end, he's the president of the US. And so... 
I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, he, he, you know, he's lined China up here with, with Imperial Japan and Al Qaeda. So, you know, we have a, a new axis of evil, if you like. Um, so, you know, the rhetoric is very extreme. It, it's, it's, it's run through all kind of different avenues. We've had, uh, you know, lots of allegations of, of uh, where the virus came from, the China, the uh, Wuhan lab material, of course. And then on the other hand, you've got China going just as hard, smashing anyone who who even looks at, uh, you know, examining where, the, where and how the virus did actually evolve out of Wuhan uh, and clouting uh, the US every time uh, we see this kind of rhetoric. So uh, right now there's extreme saber-rattling saber going on. Um, and we've seen a little bit of action as well. There's been some uh, new export controls on semiconductors in the US. Uh, they've been mooted. They've mooted some uh, prevention of financial flows from uh, government superannuation funds uh, into Chinese assets, uh, which you know obviously spooks the market to the extent that it might might uh, move into a sort of wider boycott. Uh, and last night we saw you know Trump really lining up his China trade deal uh, as well, and and giving China basically a two-week deadline to meet the conditions of the deal, uh, which, uh, you know, they have absolutely no hope of doing. In fact, they were probably never going to do it, even when the deal was signed. It, it, it was a very extreme commitment to buy a lot more U.S. product. We've got a chart in there of how extreme. It's it's a rise, uh, a very, very big rise of over $100 billion uh, in uh, U.S. purchases and Right now, of course, their own economy is struggling a great deal, uh, and so they simply don't have the demand at home to even do these things, and uh, it's such a massive number that they're not going to be able to divert either. So China's uh, the benchmark China uh, Trump has set for China is one that it has no hope of delivering on. So he's basically set himself up a trigger uh, where, you know, if he wants to, he can pull it, and the entire, you know, China trade deal that we saw uh, laboriously negotiated in the second half last year could unravel. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, I, I'll just make the point here that this is so far rhetorical uh, and we haven't seen these things happen, but, you know, uh, sort of setting up a political narrative, it's pretty worrying stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so what's driving this in the US? Um, basically, you know, Trump has horribly mismanaged the virus. Uh, he was sceptical of it as it arrived. Uh, his shutdowns were half-hearted. He's encouraged states to stay open or revolt against shutdowns at times. Uh, and that's resulted in the worst outcome of any country on earth for the virus to date, uh, obviously with both infections uh, and deaths. And, you know, although it's moving into summer, in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, you know, as states try to open up, that there's a lot of states there that has simply not flattened the curve. And we're going to see increasing virus activity along with increasing economic activity over the next few months. So Trump has a, a major issue on his hands in terms of the US election later this year when he's basically, uh, I would have thought, committed um, political suicide with this virus mismanagement. 
Um, if, I, if, if, for instance, Australia had done something similar, a, a scale of blundering of this nature, I, I would write the government off, uh, whoever it happened to be. Like, I think that this is, uh, you know, a government that can't protect its own people is, is a dead government. Um, so, uh, you know, this, this means that uh, he's got to find a scapegoat, uh, a very big one, a very loud one, uh, and a very hated one, uh, or, you know, that the responsibility for that mismanagement is going to land squarely on the administration. Um, I've got a couple of charts up there. Uh, firstly, it shows, you know, that the uh, Trump approval rating has been slipping over the last few weeks after it kind of got that run to the flag boost uh, as as the virus, you know, started to take off. Uh, it's, it's sort of somewhere just below levels where he actually got elected. So it's not disastrous yet, but uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, his approval rating stalled out and going the wrong way. Um, and so, you know, this scapegoat obviously is going to be China, uh, and it's fertile ground. Um, recent polling has been showing that uh, the American American attitudes towards China have deteriorated extraordinarily. Uh, they're now much worse than they were during any of the trade war. Uh, moreover, they are bipartisan. Um, I've, I've got one... Uh, poll result recently from Harris with about 90% of Republicans uh, who see China as to blame, and, and it's even two-thirds of Democrats see China as to blame for the virus. Uh, so this is extremely fertile ground for him to run an anti-China uh, election campaign. Uh, and, and, he's, and he's got a quite a strong uh, strong part on that in terms of the you – know, he especially given he's up against Joe Biden, who's basically saying, well, you were the one that let them into the – um, you know, and, and and gave them all these things. So, so eight years you spent as as vice president, and, and gave away the gave away the farm, and let it, let all these American businesses go overseas. You know, on the basis that uh, China would actually open up and liberalise, and they did none of it, and you let them you let them keep going. So, so why can Absolute, we trust you? Yeah. Absolutely, uh, and and gave away the South China Sea as well. Yeah. You know, while Obama and, and Biden did nothing, they built all of their. Uh, you know, in in situ aircraft carriers right around the place. So yeah, I mean, um, the Democrats' history on China is much weaker than Trump's is, uh, and so you know, it's a very very obvious wedge, political wedge, to play. Um, and with all of that anger in the electorate, uh, you know, as I said, fertile ground in which to do it. So I mean, I think it at the very best we can expect escal this escalation of rhetoric to get worse, not better. Uh, and, and and I guess I'd also say if the um, you know if if Biden does get past Trump on on it, then he's not going to be running on a platform of he's not going to be running on the opposite platform. He's not going to be running no. on a platform of saying no, no, let's be really nice to China and and, and that'll fix everything. He'll be running on a yeah. yeah potentially even a, a a harsher one to make up for the fact that they didn't do anything. Yes, that's right. I, I mean, uh, I think um, you know, Trump. Trump is better placed, but uh, you know, uh, obviously, Trump's agenda is going to set the agenda of the election, uh, and so the, the Dems will need to be tough. Uh, but I think they'll struggle to be to be as tough, at least in a rhetorical sense. Uh, the question is, of course, does that rhetoric turn into uh, policy? Um, now, to some extent. I think it will have to. 
simply to give some ballast to to the rhetoric. Uh, and you know, we're certainly going to see things like pushback on um, you know the critical supply chains. Um, certainly, attempts to reform on health uh, and pushes for more and more investigations of China vis-a-vis -vis the virus. Uh, so we can expect that's all kind of baked in, but. The issue is, you know, does it actually scrap the trade deal uh, and or end up in, in even higher tariffs or other forms of punishment for China, which you know might include, um, you know, um, financial flow boycotts, etc. Um, so if we just skip over to our next chart here, that this is the, the kind of macro underpinnings of, of why this is likely uh, to uh, well, it's a basis upon which policy, um, you know, may be necessary to actually match the rhetoric. And that is like coming out of the virus, even during the recovery, we can expect the world to be in a state of serious demand deficit. Uh, you know, basically, everybody everywhere is going to be rebuilding buffers, all the private sectors, the corporations, uh, households. Uh, SMEs, etc. Uh, they've all been shocked, you know, had the life shocked out of them. So we can expect everybody to be saving for a rainy day and rebuilding buffers just in case, you know, something similar happens again, uh, especially given, you know, it's a very indebted world. Uh, and that, that, you know, leads you part way into a, into a context of ongoing secular st stagnation, in fact. You know, intensified secular stagnation, depending on how much fiscal policy responds. Uh, but you know, this this will mean that um, various governments uh, will will be looking to externalise this weakness wherever possible um, via falling currencies. And we've already seen this post GFC. We'll just see more of it, uh, which obviously will, will mean lots of QE. Uh, and, and, you know, various other uh, debasement strategies for currencies. And, of course, it, it gives you the rationale for tariffs. So, you know, there we have a, both a rhetorical, a political and a macro kind of driver for a resumption of trade war. Um, and so if we, if we move across to our next slide, which is where it starts to get quite serious, uh, is this a Great Depression rerun? I mean, everybody knows the old story of um, <clears throat> uh, the Great Depression basically starting as a demand shock, but ending as a supply shock as trade collapsed um, uh, through Smoot-Hawley tariffs, etc. cetera. Uh, and I've put a chart up here from Charles Kindleberger, who sort of the, wrote the defining text on, on the actually david actually it might be worth just for listeners just giving a little bit more context to that so so basically um yeah as david said started what started as a demand shock then factored into um you know one upmanship from from uh countries where everyone every country was trying to protect its own um its own backyard and they all started erecting these trade barriers as as time went on to try and and, and each, each time somebody put one on, the next country would then go and put a, a higher one on in, in retaliation and, and 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 so on and so forth. Yeah, quite right. Um, now, if you read the defining text on this, which is um, "World in Depression" by Charles Kindleberger, he he outlines uh, a history to what transpired in the Great Depression that's incredibly similar to what we're seeing today. Um, that is through the 19th century, we had this. 
uh, huge globalisation pulse kind of coming out of the British Empire. Uh, and the, the British economy, much like the US economy has been in this century, uh, or a lot of, more the last and the, the early part of this century, was the economy of last resort. So if, if the British economy was weak, capital tended to flow outwards and stimulate you know, the rest of the empire, then they would start sucking in um, you know, British imports, which would improve things at home. And then vice versa, if the, if the home economy was... Sorry, guys. Can you hear that? That's all right. Keep going. All right. Uh, if the conversely, if the home economy was strong, then it would suck in, you know, lots of imports and keep the keep the global economy strong. Now, that's just a one hundred percent analogy of the way the U.S. economy has worked over the last several decades. Uh, the problem is, at a certain point, uh, you know, what happened coming into the twentieth century. Um, we, sorry, guys. I've just got a bit of a, a child revolution here. Let, uh, let, let me just let me just put it put it down, and I'll. Yeah, that's fine. So let me let, let me let me take over from that. But uh, so I think I think the the key bit was really that you've got this. Um, so you've got this one great power sort of that's sitting there in terms of it wants to be. Uh, it doesn't want to be the economy of the last resort anymore because it's built up these huge this huge debt burden, and so we're talking say about uh, let's say we're talking about about England um, initially, and so they they didn't want to they didn't want to be running uh, the one that had to keep running um, massive deficits in terms of pulling in being the demand driver of the rest of the world um, because they just built up so much debt that they could they could no longer afford to it afford it to be, and then the yeah the the rising great power that. Uh, in terms of the U.S., it doesn't want to be the economy of last resort because of political issues. And and the U.S., you know, the analogy with the U.S. and China is actually very, very similar in terms of the amount of, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, allegations of, of intellectual property theft um, in the from the U.S. in the in the early 1900s. Um, you know, they're a huge exporter of, of their goods, um, and, uh, and 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 so uh, you know, absent the political system, um, it was a very similar dynamic to what you to what you're seeing, and so. You know, then you roll that forward in, into today's terms, and you have the same thing where you know the U.S. doesn't want to be the uh, the, the economy of the last resort with with its debt burden, <clears throat> um, and you're facing the same thing in terms of China is is not interested in in picking up and becoming, um, you know, actually being a, an importer and, and actually being the 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 world um, you know, the, the driver of, of world demand, um, you know, owing to its political issues and and, and other factors as well. And so, um, and so that's where you get caught in this whole uh, trade war, where you just get this, the tit for tat, and, and each side then wants to, you know, the, the, the fading great power doesn't want to doesn't want to lose, lose any more of its trade, and so it starts erecting trade barriers, and then um, vice versa, and, and that's this graph we can see on the on the right, <coughs> which is showing you, uh, you know, the spiraling inwards. So as month as month uh, went, you know, each month passed, uh, you would get just less and less world trade. Uh, you know, every single month until you sort of spiraled in towards that, um, you know, basically towards zero. Uh, so, Damien, I guess, like casting your mind back then to, to now, though, um, you know, when you're talking in trade, there's obviously been a hollowing out of things like manufacturing in a lot of countries where you sort of almost have to, like I'm just perhaps using just Australia as an example where it's like, well, we, we've only got one choice if we want to use the, you know, the equipment and tools and, and everything is, you know, this that sort of, 
um, centralization of manufacturing um, an issue now? Or was that, would that potentially smooth it perhaps a little bit because there is sort of a minimum level of trade required, otherwise the country would just stop until it could build its own stuff? Uh, look, I think the, 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 the stuff that China makes generally isn't particularly uh, complex to make mm-hmm. and the formulas are well known and, and it's, it's more of a matter of scale. Um, and I guess the question comes back for a lot of these is saying, well, okay, it's, it's great that you can buy a, a cordless drill for, for $20, $30 for you know, a cheap cordless drill, but if you actually had to pay 50 or 60 would it, would it be a massive impetus? You know, would, mm-hmm. would, that, would that suddenly mean the, uh, the, the economy ground to a halt? And, and I, don't think, I don't think that's the case in, in a lot of these. I mean, it's, it's obviously not going to help, but... Um, no, but given- what, it, what it does do is, is obviously lower your, the, your income. I mean, your effective income, because you've, you've got $40 less to spend on something else. Yes. Mm. So so it does slow your growth. But, yeah. Uh, and let me just apologise. I'm back now. My four-year-old is, isn't too happy about the great power dynamics either. So <laughs> anyway, so carry on, yes? Uh, or shall I take it, take over? Yeah, here you go. Here you go. Um, yeah, so you've, you've more or less explained the... The uh, the dynamics that lead to uh, you know various constraints on trade. So let, let, let's flip over and and ask you know what the market market implications are. Um, so you know there's a lot of impetus for for the China trade deal to run into serious trouble. It's quite possible we see even higher tariffs as well. Um, but, you know, those things aren't certain, but they are, you know, becoming very material risks. So, you know, the first first kind of cab off the rank on this is a strong US dollar, uh, not necessarily on actual tariffs, um, certainly if we get them, uh, but possible, possible tariffs and rising risk of them is enough. And that, that, that will be driven by, you know, the intensifying rhetorical war, which is going to get worse as we get close to the election at, a, at an absolute minimum. So if we have a strong US dollar, you know, in this demand deficit world that's struggling to recover um, out, of, uh, out of the virus shock, that's very different to the kind of environment that we would usually see in a global recovery. Normally we would see, you know, the Fed finally does enough uh, and the US dollar starts to fall and that starts to reliquify the entire global economy and you know borrowing costs start to fall in marginal economies and emerging markets etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, as the US dollars start to flood out of the US instead of in uh, and you know so at this point it's probably too early to say either way in terms of a recovery but uh, you know the threat of these this this escalating problem with China if it keeps the US dollar strong it's going to make it very difficult for a lot of the, the the peripheral economies in the globe to recover, that means they'll have higher capital costs, um, higher interest rates, and borrowing costs, uh, and they'll already be struggling with a southern hemisphere winter virus shock. So, what that adds up to is you get no GFC rerun, recovery rerun. As you recall, in the GFC, the, what I just described is exactly what happened. Eventually, we had enough from the Fed and China was stimulating like a mad thing. And so capital just gushed out of the US and went went to anywhere. 
uh, peripheral for a, a better return, including the Aussie dollar, which everyone will recall uh, as we were benefiting from the Chinese fiscal, fiscal stimulus. But that dynamic's simply not going to happen this year uh, with this, this kind of um, geopolitical setup. And so that's a huge headwind for any kind of uh, V-shaped recovery. Uh, makes life extremely difficult for commodities as well, uh, being priced in US dollars, but also because uh, so much of commodity demand is in emerging markets, um, <clears throat> uh, as well as supply for that matter. So that helps uh, or rather hinders uh, any, any peripheral recovery driving global growth as well. There may be. Put that into context um, to break that down. So, I guess if you used, um, say, iron ore as the example, they're priced in priced in US dollars, and if you if it's at a whatever, uh, you know, eighty five dollar price, and the US dollar goes up ten percent versus uh, versus China, now that the price of the price of iron ore in um, in the in China is is ten percent more expensive, or, or in Malaysia or Brazil or wherever. And so it's that issue about if you if you if you need to if you need to import that that iron ore, then that's obviously a bad thing for for you in that country because it's it's just not that much more expensive. What yeah. what generally happens is the commodity actually comes down in you know the US dollar goes up ten percent, the commodity goes down by you know four or five percent, so that there's sort of like a it's, a it's like matched out off to a certain extent. That's yeah, basically. Um, yeah, and that's right. I, I mean, I I am actually toying with the idea that iron ore might be the exception. Uh, this time, simply because, uh, as a quick diversion, uh, it looks like China's so out of growth drivers that it's simply going to have to to press the panic button on empty apartments again. Uh, I don't think that this is an imminent kind of boom for iron ore, but it might might keep it a bit firmer than I'd originally anticipated for the year ahead. But it, but it, but that's you know by the by. Um, <clears throat> so. So you've got a uh, you know a world that just is very much struggling to recover already, made much more difficult by, by uh, uh, the strong US dollar, uh, and then you know uh, uh, you'll also have this big push against Chinese supply chains, um, which will also damage growth, um, and so you, you're looking at a really um, tepid kind of global recovery, at least for this year. Uh, and so you, then you've got to ask yourself, you know, are stocks priced for this outcome? Um, there's some good news in that as well as bad. Uh, you, you know, like I think we've seen stocks already starting to struggle as, as you know, these kind of dynamics dawn on the market. They haven't really gone anywhere for three weeks or so after the, uh, you know, rocket, rocket rebound or the crash up. As we like to call it, um, uh, the good news on that front is that you know Trump's obviously uh, gone very strongly on, on uh, measuring his president's uh, his presidency using the stock market as the number one benchmark. So he doesn't want to push too hard and and crash the stock market. So he's on a kind of good behaviour bond with the stock market. And there's one reason to to think that the war it will be something of a rhetorical war or a faux war. Uh, with the US and China. But the problem is, if Trump's still facing all of these difficulties with the virus and the blowback from that, and he gets a lousy recovery anyway, then, you know, it's kind of all all bets are off um, for how hard he goes in on China and therefore the difficulty faced by the stock market. 
Uh, inflation, uh, just forget about it. Um, you know, it's it was we're already into a massively deflationary shock in a massively deflationary world. Uh, and then if you add a strong US dollar to that, then it's just it's a you know it's it's a pure deflationary environment. Uh, nothing to worry about. Well, um, and I guess you, there's there's parts where you say um, yeah this type of environment, especially when you when you when you see the trade uh, tariff barriers lifted and uh, lots of changes in supply chain to sort of bring supply chains back to countries, and plus all the bits about you know adding some more fat into the supply chain. So so that is generally um, that you know all everything else being equal, that's generally inflation inflationary. It's just that. For, for our part, that means rather than being, you know, a big part of def- deflation, it might just end up being a little bit of deflation. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, there, there are always inflationary, inflationary things going on. It's just that I think they're going to get swamped. Yeah. And, and most, uh, but most of the trade war is inflationary. It's just that oh, absolutely. The, the deflationary pressures are so much larger that exactly. it pulls it back yep. the other way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And, and as you and know, I have discussed before, like, ooh, we really don't see a lot of that repatriation of supply chains as being uh, labour-driven. You know, like for it, for it to be viable, it's likely going to have to be heavily automated anyway. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there may be some inflation in some of the, the capex costs, but it's not really – it's not going to lead to any kind of wage push inflation or, you know, it doesn't really do a great deal for you other than – uh, your your kind of sovereignty, no, that's true. and certainly doesn't do a lot that much for for inflation. Even if you are repatriating, if you're using robots, um, mm. so you know the direct implication for all of these things is the Australian dollar is no place to be. Uh, you know, obviously, in terms of rhetorical or you know actual uh, trade war. Uh, between the US and China is a very, very Australian dollar negative um, for obvious reasons. Uh, us being, you know, uh, the, you know, conducting the impossible straddle between the two, uh, you know, it may result directly in some of the threats that we've seen becoming real where uh, China actually bans its tourists or, or students. Uh, yeah. or, or, Alex, just probably worth giving a little bit of um uh, prelude to that, just sort of so, say that, yeah. So this is a Chinese uh, ambassador has has made uh, relatively unsubtle threats that um, uh, the tourism, uh, education. What is they have? There's something else on there, wasn't it? Uh, tourism and education were the big ones. What was the other one, David? They, they were threatening. Uh, it was tourism, tourism and students were the main tourism ones. Oh, oh no, there are a few. Uh, there was beef, I think. Right, and, wine, yeah. and beef and wine, but but, yeah. uh, but not, are... specifically not commodities was. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Well, uh, I mean, they're already pressuring commodities where they can. Um, yeah, like they're definitely pressuring coal, uh, but they they simply can't afford to pressure iron ore, so that that'll be fine. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, it all it basically all adds up to uh, a very difficult environment for the Australian dollar. Uh, so what I, I would expect it to remain very weak. Uh, and if stock markets do actually swoon at some point because the trade war turns turns real, uh, then I would think that the Australian dollar would do exactly what it did earlier this year and crash right along with stocks. Hmm. Um, 
Uh, and the other immediate uh, thoughts that I had out of out of this discussion was gold, uh, what it means for gold. Um, this one's a, this is a, a, a difficult one. I mean, is it a headwind for gold? Yes, because you know a strong U.S. dollar is always a headwind for gold. Or is it a problem for gold? Insofar as if you have a a, a very strong U.S. dollar, would gold fall? Um, gold actually performed okay during 2019 and the trade wars. So I guess the geopolitical risk um, helped offset you know, the strong US dollar. Uh, and so it's a bit of a toss up on which one of those would win in this environment. Um, certainly, uh, if you have this strong US dollar and these very deflationary dynamics, um, you know, you're still going to have the Fed pumping away as well. And so despite, uh, you know, the US dollar being strong, the underpinnings of the reserve will be weak. Uh, and so it's possible gold would be okay. Uh, and so that bull, what we see, or I see, is a burgeoning bull market would probably continue. Uh, but you know, the really bullish scenario for gold is actually untroubled global recovery, along the lines very much as what we described post GFC, where you just simply have the Fed doing enough to sink the US dollar, uh, and you know, gold just gets uh, a big monetary tailwind from. Um, from all the money printing, uh, so it's 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 certainly a less favourable scenario for gold than a recovery, but it would probably still be uh, reasonably strong, I would guess. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, okay. uh, I might swing over to you, Damo. Now, yeah, you've got a couple of questions too, gents. But um, yeah, if you uh, your well, let's, go, let's go to questions first. Questions first, okay? Yeah, yeah sure. So. These have just come through while they've been talking. And for anyone listening in live, uh, nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinar is where we're picking these up from underneath the video. Uh, so a quick note here, actually just a, a comment and a question. Uh, loving the kids in the in David's background. Uh, we're all dealing with similar issues working from home at the moment. So interesting uh, uh, feedback there. Uh, do you see any heightened risk of conflict breaking out in the South China Sea in the lead up to the US election, thinking of a wag the dog scenario of Trump trying to bolster his re-election hopes, gentlemen? Well, I mean, that is a fascinating question. Uh, the, the first thought that comes into my head is uh, I was reading last week that currently the US only has one serviceable aircraft carrier globally because all the rest of them have got the virus. <laughs> uh, and and that's 21 aircraft characters, carriers that they have. Uh, so, uh, you know, right now is a terrific time if you want to flip that on its head for China to invade Taiwan, if it wanted to. Um, you know, the US would, would struggle to uh, mobilise <laughs> enough forces to, to fight it off. Um, now, that's no laughing matter, of course, but I don't think it's going to happen. So that, that gives me a giggle. And I guess that's the point, really, is, you know, I, this actually was an opportunity for, for China to invade Taiwan, and it didn't do it. Uh, so does it really want to, um, or it just feels like it's not strong enough yet, or, you know, it's got other things on its plate and it's not worried about it? you know, enough domestic uh, unrest to bother. Uh, and so, you know, that calculus then applied to the US, I don't think so. I don't think you would, you know, I don't think uh, going, look, if you're hesitating to go to trade war because you're worried about the stock market and you're kind of, uh, you know, 
um, on this tightrope of trying to be strong enough to win the election with about, without being so strong as to unravel your, your own uh, liquidity-driven um, st- oh, then you. we'd go straight to kinetic war because you, you know you'll obviously crash everything in sight with a with a perhaps a gain but i mean there are a lot of steps between um you know strong rhetoric and any kind of kinetic war in the straits so i wouldn't expect something like that no. yeah but but the danger the danger is that yeah trump decides to do something small and then trying to step back and then trump tries to do something yeah. a little bit bigger and china pushes back and then trump yeah tries to pushes china too far Look, there's always a risk when 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 you get this red hot rhetoric and and when the public is on board with it uh, and the blood is up in a country, there's always a heightened risk of things spiraling beyond anybody's uh, preconceived plan. Mm. Uh, and, and you can stumble into conflict. Absolutely, yeah. it's, it's higher risk than normal, but mm. I, I would certainly see it as a tail risk. And yeah. moreover, as an accident rather yes. than a yeah. plan. But but the other thing is, we've focused a lot on the US um, in this discussion, and, and and we haven't really spoken about the, the Chinese political constraints, which are which are sort of similar in a way, in that um, you know you've got the uh, you have them there trying to. Like they've they've obviously had suffered a blow to their to their uh, legitimacy as well in terms of their their basic pact with the people is um, we won't give you any freedom but we'll look after you and sort everything out for you and given they haven't um, you know they've they've obviously got to uh, you know working up a bit of nationalism in in China is is important as well on the other side yes yes it is absolutely mm-hmm. they they I mean their own public are blaming the CCP yep. so mm. yeah. Interesting. Uh, one more question, two gents here uh, from uh, average uh, listener. I know I've seen this name a few times, Stephen F. Um, what are the indicators used to separate whether this is just a, a recession or is now a depression, great or otherwise? Uh, and even if there is a differentiation between the two, does it matter? Well, I, I would argue we've been in in a form of depression since 2008. What about the country, uh, though? No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> not, not, yeah, not an official one. <laughs> no, not an official one, but, but an income one, in effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you measure, uh, you know, um, things like, um, you know, household income uh, measures, then uh, the, the slump that we saw in the Great Depression and then recovery is now above where we were coming out of 2008. Now, obviously, it fell first and then rose, but we've had what is effectively an income recession going for a decade, uh, yeah. depression going depression. for a decade. Well, so depression is usually 10%. So, yeah, look, so, it's, it's flat rather so, than... Yeah, I think if yeah. you call it a great recession, you'd certainly be, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah fair enough. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, what what would make it a depression? Well, I mean, I guess you could say that the GDP shocks from the virus are depressionary, like they are of that scale, ten percent. Yeah, and so you'd have every, all fairness in calling this a de- what well, it will effectively be a depression in historical terms. Yeah, and, and the um, other one's um, unemployment is a big one. Though. Yes, like, like Australia and, often picks on the uh, on. GDP is being like its only measure of whether you're in a recession or not, but yep. um, but yeah, other countries um, 
look at a range of different measures in terms of manufacturing output and employment as being key. Yeah. And yeah, by the by the employment measure, you'd say yes, it's a depression. Absolutely, and I mean, Goldman was out last week saying that if you accepted uh, uh, job keeper, then Australian under an unemployment was already around twenty four percent. So, I mean, you, you wouldn't get any argument from anyone that that's not depressionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, those are the kind of measures that I guess would call it a depression. Um, in, in slightly less formal terms, though, I think I'd go back to that discussion we have where we just have this demand deficit going. Uh, and, you know, that's quite – those are depressionary dynamics, basically. Um, secular stagnation, etc., uh, and if it does result in actual trade war, um, then you know you will those, those depressionary dynamics will intensify. Mm. I mean, and the other um, the other part is a uh, you know we, we haven't gone into it today, and there's a there's a whole topic in itself is that um, you know what's called a, a balance a balance sheet recession, where um, you know you. you the, the leverage and and the structure of uh, people's liabilities actually means that um, even though the numbers might not look as bad, there there is a, a bigger recession happening for, in terms of in terms of that. And I think there's a there's a pretty good argument for um you know that e- even if we didn't have this going on, that that we, you know a balance sheet recession was um yeah was certainly odds on as well. Well, if you if we go back to those charts we had earlier from Deutsche, which uh, in the demand deficit section. Uh, you know, they they show the crisis is moving from liquidity to solvency, and and so it'll you know bank balance sheets are in for a depressionary shock. Yeah, and what David means by that is um, liquidity side is saying, well, you know, every, every, I'm fine except I just need uh, you know I haven't got cash right now. It's 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 still coming in. I'm waiting for my customer to pay me or whatever it is, and and once that cash gets in there, then then everything's fine. Whereas a solvency comes into well, I'm, I'm making a loss, but you know, I'm not even sure how I'm going to get out of it, and and and, um, and so you know, the companies are go they're going to go broke because they they genuinely don't have the demand, and as opposed to uh, companies going broke because they just don't happen to have cash on, on hand at the moment because it's all tied up somewhere else, and so that's where um, yeah, and that's the part, hardest part for you know we've obviously seen central banks step in and, and do lots of lending and and lots of support to markets, which is which is good because it's it means it's um, they've solved the solvency, they've solved the liquidity issues, but the uh, the solvency ones are, are much harder to uh, much harder to manage. And they if- are, and and you know the nationalisation of capital markets has probably saved most corporations from from tipping over that ledge. But uh, the real problems in the SMEs where they don't have access to capital markets. That's bank lending was where they get their funding, and they're they're all facing you know uh, tightening standards and difficulty rolling over etc so mm. yeah, that's where yeah. you that's where you'll see your balance sheet balance sheet recession yeah and that they tend to be sort of um 60 70 percent of the economy tends to be in that that uh that area of the market so yeah it's they do a, yes it is not an insignificant part of the market mm. yeah, yeah. The, uh, the listed part is actually much much smaller very good um Attention turns now to, uh, I guess, these themes in the portfolios, Damien. Maybe a bit of insight on, on what's been happening well, with us. I mean, I think that I think the market implications there were uh, that David ran through were sort of 
follow up what what we what our expectations are. Yep. Um, the, the issue for for us is then you know do you try and chase markets higher and and it's a it's a discussion we've been having. You know if can um, can if central banks go in and just buy everything and, and and start buying you know like the like the uh, the Japanese central bank does you know is out, out there buying equities even um, you know does that mean that uh, you, you you can't fight the Fed and and <laughs> you, every, all assets are just going to keep getting pushed up and um, you know it's a it's a genuine it's a genuine uh, concern you can have in terms of saying will will there actually be so much money um, that you just don't even worry about valuations don't worry about the falling profits and and losses of jobs and loss of demand um, because the Fed will just keep spending money and, and keep bailing you out um, versus the part about saying uh, there's you know there, there's various options you have and one of those options is cash and if cash is going to give you a zero percent return then that might actually look attractive if if you basically you know I guess what we've been looking at buying stocks I think the US stocks there for a while got to and um, they're probably on about 25 times earnings um, maybe a little bit lower now but um, just to put that in context, you're basically getting a, a 4% um, you know, return on earnings, which is sort of you know, less than a 2% return on, 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 your, on, your, uh, on, your, on your dividends um, with a view that you can lose, you can, you can wipe that out in a day's movement. You know? If you're getting a 4%, if you're saying, yeah, I'm getting 4% return, but the stock markets are volatile all, all that, and, and they do go back to their long-term averages, then you're going to lose almost half your, um, your valuation on that. So... Um, so yeah, so we're, we're we've been of the view that um, the markets are pricing in a V-shaped recovery that seems to be very unlikely. Um, if it does happen, there is a V-shaped recovery, then the markets have already priced them in. So we don't think we're we don't think we're giving away that much by by, by maintaining um, uh, some conservatism in, in our asset position. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, if if it doesn't come back with a, a V-shaped and and I mean, we're we're not the only one out there suggesting that that uh, this this recovery could be a lot could be a lot longer. Um, then uh, there's plenty of downside that you uh, you want to hedge yourself against and and you want to avoid. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Uh, so look, yeah, thanks very much, gents, for the time today. Uh, finished uh, nicely on time as well, uh, which will be great. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, thanks for everyone tuning in. Thanks for the guys who pop through the questions. And if you are listening to this, uh, obviously post-show, uh, you're more than welcome to check us out live and, of course, participate along the way with those live questions uh, in the in the box at uh, nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinar. So on that note, we'll catch you at the next one. Cheers. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.